Hey folks, welcome to Sports Inside and Out, Legend of Sports. This is your host, C.B. Baker. Um, we've got a really good one here with Leroy Keys today in the NFL and NCAA update, but we're going to do a, something a little bit different today. For everybody out there, you've heard of, we've talked about um, myself, C.B. Baker, and Leroy, but did you really know the story of Leroy Keys? And today, this is what we're going to be bringing to you today. So this is a little bit of an interview format. Uh, this segment is we're going to dive into Leroy's um, collegiate life and his life in the NFL with the Philadelphia Eagles and other teams that he played for. So welcome to the show, Leroy. All right. Thank you. Good morning, CB. Good morning. Yeah. So, um, you know, we was talking off air and I, and I, I called you up and I said, you know what, we've got to hear your story because every once in a while, you know, with coach, you know, coach knows the story. I would hear, like little side conversations before we get into the broadcast, and he would talk, you know, tell jokes about what you did. And then um, Leon Carey, because he uh, was in the in the Hampton Roads area at the same time you were, and he would just tell stories about how great of an athlete you were um, back then in the Hampton Roads area. So let's let's get into that. So um, when did you first realize that you was could be pretty good at football? Oh, well, see, it, it goes way back. I, I, I would say I was born in 1947, so I'm going to say uh, 1953 when I was a six-year-old. <laughs> uh, I was playing ball with guys who were four to five years older than I was, and I was able to compete and hold my own. And uh, I guess someone just said, uh, God has given you a gift, especially in football where you have you have the size. I was... Uh, I was bigger than most of the kids in my neighborhood, and yet I could run, I could catch, I could do most of the things that uh, a lot of kids couldn't do. I guess also because we didn't have the advantages of kids today, we we were lucky to even think we had a TV in the house to watch whatever was going on in the NFL or college football or anything of that nature. So I made it my business as a young kid at the age of six to go over to the high school and watch the guys who played for my high school team, the high school that I eventually went to, George Washington Carver High, and watched them play. And, and I was in awe of their athleticism, their ability to do things and do it right. And uh, I just fell in love with the game of football at, 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 at that moment. And so it became a daily sandlot game for us. Uh, it, it was football season. That's all we played was football. And uh, when it was basketball season, we played basketball. So I, I was a sports enthusiast from the age of six until I guess now seventy years. Uh, we're at the age of seventy right now. Okay, so you was um because like everybody else back in the day, everybody played every sport. So you, so I'm, I'm assuming you played every sport that was out there from track all the way down to just baseball. If it was anything that had the word competition attached to it, <laughs> I was involved in it. Whether it was shooting marbles, whether it was playing hopscotch, whether it was playing volleyball, whether it was called dodgeball, whether it was golf whether it was tennis, tippy wings, if it was a game, <laughs> shooting pool, the whole nine yards. It right. was just, I was just in love with the fact that I loved to compete. And uh, I wasn't the fastest kid in the neighborhood, but it didn't mean anything. I'd race you anyhow. If it meant jumping the canal, which was a dividing ride between a bridge that was over a canal, I, I would tell you about it, I can jump that thing. Uh, it was just competing to prove to myself that I could do it. And uh, this was early at an early age, and basketball came naturally, football came naturally, track and field came naturally. 
if we had had a baseball team at my high school, I'm quite sure I would have played on the baseball team, which I did later on. I did play baseball in what we call the shipyard league. And I enjoyed playing against the older guys who were much more mature, but yet it was another challenge and another right. competition. So I loved it. So what area did you um, grow up in? I grew up in Newport News, Virginia, which is in the Tidewater area of, of Virginia. I tell most people when you get on a train and you leave Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, D.C., and you're going south, that train is going to ultimately take you into Newport News because that's the end as far as you can go unless it goes into the Hampton Road Tunnel or Hampton Road end, but it's Chesapeake Bay and all that the water right. is before you go across. You had to take the James River Bridge or the uh, right now they got the Hampton Road Tunnel over um, to the eastern shore to go down to North Carolina, South Carolina, and down south. So we're at the end of a peninsula and surrounded by, on both sides, by water. And uh, quite naturally, uh, I'm not the greatest swimmer in the world. That's maybe one thing I didn't catch on well. I can swim, but living around water and being in the Tidewater area, Luther New Shipbuilding Dry Dock Company was the major workforce in, in our area, uh, and then we had Langley Field in Hampton, because we were neighborhoods with Hampton, Newport News, Norfolk, and then we had Richmond and Williamsburg in between. And so uh, I would say I was in the Tidewater area, and we played a, a good game of sports in the in the Tidewater area. Yeah. You know, and in the Tidewater area, at, during that time frame, when you was in high school, um, Hampton, it was Hampton Institute at that time, and Norfolk State University was relatively like real big time um, sports leagues in the in the then CIAA. Am I correct? You're very correct, CB. Uh, you had the CIAA, you had Hampton University. Uh, so we got to see North Carolina A and T come up, uh, NC, uh, NCC, uh, North Carolina Central. Uh, uh, but the real talent in the, in, in the area to us was we had Little State, which was Norfolk State in Norfolk. We had Big State, which was up in Petersburg. They were the better known school because whenever we had the state championship in track and field, we went to Petersburg to, to Big State, right. uh, Virginia State College in, in, in Petersburg, Virginia. But uh, we played all of our CIAA, uh, not CIAA, Eastern District basketball games at Norfolk State because it was right across the river. And so we got a chance to go out and showcase our talents over in the Norfolk Portsmouth area. And uh, it was quite, quite, quite an accomplishment just to make it to the state finals or state in basketball or any sport. And so now you, you basically, as, as, at six years old, was able to. Um, you found out you was very athletic because you was basically playing three, four grades of competition above you. So now we're venturing into high school now. So now you're getting more organized, organized sports. Um, so what? What made you gravitate more towards football versus other sports that you were playing? Well, you know, it, it was one of those things where when you sit down and you look at the things, and I sit down and just kind of watch the, the landscape. I, I, you know, I watched Ralph Austin, I watched Bob Beam in, in track and field, and I said, maybe one day I'll be able to jump as far as those guys. But do I really want to be an Olympian? I, I, I didn't have my eye and heart set on it. Uh, I thought I was real good at table tennis and ping pong. Mm -hmm. and, but yet, when I saw those guys from China and Japanese players, <laughs> man, so I don't think I could beat those guys. Right. But football, 
when, when you had a chance to get on the field with uh, 11 other guys on uh, 10 guys on offense and 10 guys on defense and you're the 11th person and yet you can acclimate yourself to learn how to do all the things that are needed in order to win. I mean, as far as throwing the ball as a quarterback, which I did some in high school, as a running back because I was, I guess, a little bigger than most kids and I had some agility in my feet, some footwork that I could elude people enough and had enough speed to not get caught from behind too often. Uh, I had good enough vision and hands to be a wide receiver. But yet, you know, I I thought the challenges in football was I loved being a punter. I did the punting in high school for my sophomore, uh, freshman year in high school. Really, I made the varsity as a freshman. Uh, so I I was able to because I had four years of eligibility. So therefore, I was able to punt, and uh, I, I did a lot of kicking off. So I I always was involved in the overall aspect of football. And I said, you know, football is okay. Basketball was my true love. Oh but really? I really like basketball was my true love. CD. I was I was pretty decent at basketball. I was I was the Michael Jordan before Michael Jordan became who he is. <laughs> I mean. Uh, you talk about Dr. Day, but you go you go to my hometown, you ask somebody who who was the best basketball player. I mean, AI had a great career at Bethel High School. Uh, you name any basketball player who came out of Virginia and say, I was the top scorer in the state of Virginia, point-wise, for 27 years. Wow. And uh, I, I scored over 2,000 points. And that we didn't shoot threes. Had we been able to shoot threes in the county, I probably would have averaged 35, 40 points a game. Uh, yearly or weekly, or whatever you want to call it. Right. But, uh, basketball was my true love. I mean, I, I, I love basketball, but I had to make a choice. And I said, well, I didn't want to go to college and, and try to play basketball and football because my, my own, own, uh, overall goal was graduating four years. Right. I didn't want to meander around in a college setting for five years trying to catch up on this and go to summer school for that. I just said, I'm going to stay focused on one sport. I'm going to stay with football and I'm going to see what happens. And and I always tell everybody God is good because once the choice was made, that's where I stayed. Although I played a lot of intramural basketball here at Purdue, right. and uh, they they knew when we when we walked in the correct with, with, with some of these roughneck football players, they were in for a, a long evening. And uh, so I, I, I but uh, basketball was my true love. Football was second, but football was the one I decided to try, and it was kind of a great great decision. Now, so let me. Um, so now you are you're in the area where you have Hampton University and mm-hmm. Norfolk State. So how right. did how did you end up going to Purdue and passing on Hampton and passing on Norfolk State? Which at that at this time, I want people to understand this. During this time frame, Hampton and Norfolk State was at their pinnacle of the HBCU era of of sports. So we're talking. Like this is like passing up going to the Big 12 or the Big 10 now to go play for Purdue. So explain that process and why you ended up in Purdue. Okay. The, the, the way this thing went down was kind of crazy. And, and to, to, the, to every fan out there, I, don't, I won't know their background. So I pray that they understand what I'm about to say. And it, 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 doesn't have, it does have some racial overtone involved in it because back in the 60s and the 50s, Black athletes in the South could not go to predominantly white schools. Right. There was no opportunity for me to go to a predominantly white school in the state of Virginia. I couldn't go to William & Mary. I couldn't go to University of Virginia. I couldn't go to Virginia Tech. 
uh, those name schools. I couldn't go to any school in the state of Virginia as a black athlete. Right. So our opportunities to go to school were decimated as you could even go to an HBCU school, be it Hampton, be it A&T, or CIAA school, Maryland, Morgan State. Those were the schools that recognized black athletes, and that was like our proving ground. But in 1966, I guess, as we looked at the uh, lay of the land, UCLA had black ball players. The schools up north had black ball players with Penn State, many more going to uh, Penn State, Big Jim Parker. You had uh, uh, a basketball player at NYU. I forget his name now, but he was a great basketball player. Syracuse had Jim Brown, Ernie Davis, you name it. And but I knew I couldn't go to Alabama, I couldn't go to North Carolina, I couldn't go to Duke, I couldn't go to any school below the Mason Dixie line. Right. So quite naturally, the person who was instrumental in my going to Purdue is Marv Levy. Now Marv Levy was the head coach at Women Mary, which was sixteen miles from my hometown. Marv Levy knew the guy who was the recruiting coordinator, a defensive coordinator who had the peninsula area as his outreach recruiting ground. Purdue really didn't recruit Virginia that often because they were normally in the Midwest. And so he 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 had a friend named Bernie Miller who was from Portland, Virginia. And he said, Bernie, you won't believe this. We got a kid down here who makes the paper every week in every sport, track and field, uh, football, basketball. I would love to recruit this kid, but I don't want to be the first one to go out and try to recruit and bring a black kid into an all-white institution. Right. So if if you guys want a, want a football player, y'all need to send somebody down here and look at this kid. And I didn't know until I talked to Marv about it. And uh, so Bernie came down sight unseen. I was in basketball season when Bernie came down. And, you know, CD is amazing when you go into your gymnasium, which I came from an all-black conference. I'd never played football against a white kid until I came to Purdue University. Wow. And so quite naturally, knowing that how are you going to facilitate, you're going to a school that all your instructors are black, the principal is black, the bus drivers, the people in the cafeteria, everybody that you're associated with are black. And yet in this area that I lived in, in Newport News, we had white kids all around us, but they were being bused to all white high schools and the black kids were passing all white high schools to get to this all black high school. Right. So uh, when Bernie Miller came down to see me, it was at a basketball game. And as we were all coming into the gymnasium, the entire team stopped. And we all looked up in the stands and we saw the first white face we'd ever seen in our gymnasium. Like, this man must be lost. And come to find out, he was scouting for Purdue. Right. So the next day, Bernie went around to all of the schools that I played against. Huntington High School, Phoenix High School, Bruton Heights, the schools I played against. And he asked me, told me, do you think this kid, Keys up at Carver, is, can play in the Big Ten? Right. And not knowing what people say about you, but if you if you do things right, you, you hope that people say good things about you. And I think that all the coaches said, if there's a kid in this state who can play anywhere in the, in the country. That kid, Keys of the Carver, can play anywhere. He can play any position. Uh, he can do many things. He's multi-gifted. If Keys decided he wanted to go to Purdue, they will get a winner. And the other thing that helped 
to do with the fact that my English teacher, Miss Marie Holland, was she was stuck on education. She wasn't she wasn't saying you you got to be the savior of the HBCU schools. You yeah. had the skill level, you had the athletic the athletic skills necessary to go anywhere in this country. And you are smart enough that you can go in the classroom and compete. Right. Going to Hampton Institute, going to Norfolk State, going to North Carolina Central, going to North Carolina ENT is not you. Your star is bigger than HBCU schools. So she told me, say, if you decide to go to North Carolina ENT, which I had almost agreed to go to, because right. my uncle was a graduate of ENT, uh, she said, I will flunk you. I looked at her, I said, you would do what? She said, Leroy, I'm telling you right now, if you even think about going to any school other than Purdue right now, I will flunk you. And I said, none is hollering. I ain't staying in high school another year. So I went on out to Purdue and everything, the rest of it is history. Right. So now you have, um, you've graduated high school. You went through the process of choosing a school and the teacher was like, you got, you know, um, you have the potential to do great things at Purdue University now that all universities are now going through integration and which was a, a painful process uh, for the nation, uh, to say the least, you know, a lot of frustration and, and things, but we overcame all of that. So now right. you're in Purdue and now it's showtime for the Leroy Keys show. So, so how long did it take you at Purdue to really get to the point where people was like, you know what, we've got something special here? Well, I, I really don't know when it happened, see. But, you know, I believe that I came to Purdue with the idea that I, I just didn't want to be uh, a recruit who just sat on the bench and watched other people play. Right. Uh, when I got here as a freshman, I knew up front that I would not go, we were not going to play as freshmen because they had a rule in the, in the Big Ten that you couldn't play as a freshman. We had to set out a full year. So that full year was given to your academics, getting uh, acclimated to going to class, uh, how to get to this part of campus, studying, right. preparing yourself to do the best you can academically to get yourself a solid footing towards your graduation in three, three years or four years. And, uh, but I had my challenges. I mean, you know, quite as, as I stated earlier, uh, coming here, uh, we, we had four African Americans in my recruiting class that year. I think they, Purdue might have recruited 20 kids who came in from Chicago, uh, Michigan, uh, I mean, Illinois, Michigan, other parts of the Midwest. Right. I was from the outer reaches of Virginia. Right. Uh, and we also brought in another kid by the name of Eric McCaskill, who was a hurdler, track runner, extraordinaire from Hunter High School. He came in my freshman class with me. He came in with a track scholarship. So at least I had a, a homeboy here at Purdue. But going from an all-black environment to a predominantly white environment, it was like, wow, how am I going to survive? Uh, I speak differently. I chop off words. Right. I'm the professor be able to understand me. But I understood football. I understood that once I put the pads on, it was mono mono. It's you against me. If you're faster than I am, fine. If you could out jump me, out tackle me, out whatever. But once I got on the gridiron, I said, this is my place to showcase and show not only my white teammates, my black teammates, the coaching staff, the people in the stand, but I had to show myself that I didn't make the wrong choice. Right. That I, I belong 
here and I belong in this program. So every day was a different challenge. You know, uh, I was questioning about how to throw a football. I said, wait a minute, guys. I know how to throw a football. I know how to punt a football. Right. I know how to catch a punt. But somebody was always questioning, you say you can do this. You run your mouth too much. But every time I opened my mouth, I said, but I can do that. And I know I can do it. Because right. I did it in high school. And right. high school, and I went both ways in high school. So playing defense and offense at Purdue was nothing new to me. Right. I knew how to backpedal. I knew how to turn my hips and run. I knew how to run routes. I knew how to get into the line of scrimmage. I had I could run with power. Uh, but for some reason, everybody was always questioning, why do you think you can do this? I said, well, I've done it before. It's, it's nothing right. new. Right. I had some great, 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 fantastic role models that I looked at at George Washington High School who to this day I still believe had they had the opportunity that I had would have been excellent wherever they went if they had visions beyond HBCU schools. And so when I got to Purdue, it was just a matter of just saying, Coach, uh, when we, when we had to go up and be the, I, I call it fowler or the, the beat up boys for the varsity right. for practice, uh, I would go up to the upper field and, uh, we played Michigan State one year and they said, we want you to be Gene Washington, who was probably one of the best wide receivers in the Big Ten at that time. And Dean Washington, six four, hurt look at Michigan State. I'm six three and a half. And they said we want to be Dean Washington. So they gave me a green and white jersey, number eighty four. <laughs> so they go up to the boss of the field. And you know how when you're in the huddle, uh, they show you the play on a diagram. Right. One of the managers holding the play up, so you see the route you have to run. And I would go over there and I'd be cocky. I'd go over there and say, "Wait, before we run this play, I'd call the defensive backs up, uh, all the defensive backs who are on the box of the side box of the defensive back." I said, guys, I need to talk to y'all for a minute because today I'm going to be your worst headache. Every route <laughs> I run, I'm going to cook you on because you guys can't stop me on nothing. I was, more, I had more brag of Dago in me than Cassius Clay or Muhammad Ali would ever have. <laughs> and and they would look at me and say, this cocky, this cocky dog, we're going to show him. And every play, I would just touch them, touch them, touch them. So eventually the players got tired of me doing what I said I was going to do, and they set me up one day in practice, and I understood what happened. And I learned from it that, you know, Leroy, you can't do it all by yourself. You need right. a teammate. Right. And so every process is a learning process. And But yet the players accepted me because everything I said I could do, I did. Right. And uh, so it, it made the transition from the non-playing description to my sophomore year when I finally got on the field uh, up against Notre Dame. And I call that a piece of luck because – we go up to South Bend to play the Irish, and uh, we only have 10 guys on the field on defense. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting next to the other uh, cornerback, and we are sitting there going, you go, you go, you go, you go. And we're looking like, somebody got to go. So right. I just jumped up, put my helmet on, ran on the field. Man, the coach didn't tell me to go on the field, but I just ran on the field to make sure we had 11 guys on the field. Right. So one, one, the, the flanker was uncovered. Right. So I run on the field, and next thing I look, I stay in the game. I have a great game. Fumble recovery for a 95-yard touchdown on the national TV against Notre Dame up in South Bend. Uh, so after that, uh, the following week, well, that week, Terry Hanyard was the starting quarterback for Notre Dame. They had a wide receiver named Jim Seymour, and he was toasting our other cornerback. So when we come back home the following week, Coach Malikoff said, uh, Leroy, next week, whoever is the best receiver for the opposing team, you're going to cover him man for man wherever he goes. So the next week we play SMU with Jerry Levias. <laughs> Jerry right. Levias is one of the sweetest wide receivers I had ever seen. And he he comes into Los Angeles Stadium and he he's talking smack. 
He was looking good in his uniform, and he told me, hey, big guy, I'm going to be your worst headache all day long. And I'm going, like, you got to be kidding me. This is a short... Well, you know, some, some right, other words right. were them on my mind. <laughs> but, but Jerry and I had, we battled all day long. And when the game was over, you know, I went up, gave him a hug because he was the first African-American to play for SMU. Right, right. So, so quite a it was a love, of, 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 it was a, a bond between football players. And I went over to him and I said, man, great game. He looked at me and said, man, I'm glad I ain't going to play you no more. I'm, I'm going to get out of this place. <laughs> and so from that moment on, uh, you know, Everything stopped falling in place, but I was playing defense exclusively. I wasn't playing in the offense, right? Because I was the second string flanker behind a kid by the name of Jim Finley, who was, I believe, Bob Greasy's favorite receiver at the time. Uh, we had Jim Finley and Jim Byrne with his split ends, and Finley was the flanker. That's and right, Jim Byrne. This is Jim Byrne, right? This yeah. is I, the ironic thing is when I was in high school, you know, Jim mm-hmm. Byrne settled in Texas. Right, and Houston, I would right. in Houston, and I lived in um, the Woodlands, Texas, and he lived down right. the street, and he became a developer. He built okay. my house. my dad's That's house. Right. That's right. Uh, we used to call him Biscuit Jim Byrne. <laughs> uh, so Jim Byrne was the wide receiver or the split end, right? And so I did. So they said, "Well, we don't need Leroy on offense." So we had Bob Greasy the quarterback. We had Curry Williams the fullback. We had a pretty good. Offenses load uh, without me being on offense. They wouldn't compete on defense. So as we get towards the end of my sophomore year, they put me in the game. You know, I think I carried the ball 13 times. I don't remember. But I think I rushed for 203 yards and 13 carries. So I think somebody wow. said, wait a minute. If this, boy, if this man can rush for 200 yards and 13 carries, we got to put him on offense. So the following year, my junior year, they moved me over to uh, offense. But they said, we, if need be, if we need you on our defense, we'll move you over depending on who we play. So we did. I did play offense and defense against Notre Dame because Seymour was still up in South Bend, but they had to come up. They had to come down to Ross Aiden play. So when I started, uh, Perry Wheel was the feature back primarily, but then we had a play called student body right, student body left. Uh, Mike Fitz was there, the quarterback. He would toss me the ball. He'd get out and he'd be about five, two pulling guards, Mike Fitz. Jimmy Kirkpatrick, myself carrying the ball, and I'm just running for space. And for some reason, I was able to elude a lot of guys in the secondary. And I said, "Wow, this is easier than I thought it was going to be." And so by then, I was leading the nation in, in, in touchdowns. And I said, "Wow, Leroy, you, you you've arrived on the scene in a big way." And so then, when the Heisman balloting came up, I I had no idea. CD to be realistically, uh, if I said it. If I said it a thousand times, not coming from wealth unknown as a young kid in, in Newport News, Virginia, we had one TV and it had with the three stations, NBC, CBS, and ABC. We didn't have all these stations that the kids get today with 500 different channels on your TV. I had no idea what the hypertrophy was all about. Uh, I knew somebody won this award at the end of the year for outstanding playmanship or being a great player at the universities. Uh, but I had no, I, I had no disclaimer. I, I would not never tell anybody I'm going to win a Heisman trophy. I, that was not my dream. My dream was I want to win a national championship. And I, I said, possibly at Purdue, if we could just get over this eight, two bug that hit us. We kept winning eight games, losing two, eight and two, eight and two, eight and two. But then I think the fulfillment of my, Collegiate career was going to the Rose Bowl, 
playing against USC in the Rose Bowl, and for us to win that game, it was almost like, wow. A kid from Virginia on the eastern seaboard, Atlantic Ocean, got an opportunity to go to California and put his feet in the Pacific Ocean. I said, man, it doesn't get any better than this. And to win the game was uh, like uh, frosting on the cake. What you just heard was part one of an interview that I did with Leroy Keys. And please stay tuned and, and keep abreast and stay notified for when I upload the part two of this um, segment next Wednesday. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to Sports Inside and Out, Legends of Sports. When legends speak, people listen. Till next time.